welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the University of New Brunswick. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Colin Campbell about his co-authored book with Robert Rosen, A History of Canadian Income Tax, Volume 1, 1917 to 1948. It's published by the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History and the Canadian Tax Foundation in 2022. Colin Campbell is an associate professor of law at Western. He has an MSc from the London School of Economics and Political Science and a PhD from the University of Toronto. He started his teaching career at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick, before returning to university to earn a law degree at Western. Following his call to the bar, he practiced as a tax partner at Davies in Toronto. His practice included tax planning, and he has also represented taxpayers before the Tax Court and the Federal Court of Appeal. Colin has written extensively on both tax planning and tax administration, but he has a particular interest in tax history. Today, we'll be talking about the much-anticipated first volume in a three-volume history of Canadian income tax. Colin, thanks for joining us today to talk about your book. Nice to be here. is the first installment in a three-volume series about the history of Canadian income tax. Can you tell us something about the origin and purpose of the series? Yeah, Robert and I were asked to do a paper on the origin of the first Federal Income Tax Act, that's the Income War Tax Act, uh, as part of the celebrations of the 100th anniversary of the passage of the Act in the 100th anniversaries in 2017. Uh, and we presented that uh, at the conference there uh, and then uh, decided to take that a little bit further and to do a proper history of the not just the origins of the statute, but the way it developed over time. And uh, that's how we got to the first volume. There's a long and intriguing connection between income tax and war. Income tax was first introduced in the United Kingdom during the Napoleonic Wars, and in the United States during the Civil War. In Canada, income tax was introduced during World War I. There is a common misconception that the tax was supposed to be a temporary measure. Can you explain why income tax was introduced? Was it really intended to be a provisional measure? The income tax was introduced at the federal level in Canada. There had been provincial income taxes for a good many years prior to 1917, uh, it was introduced to deal with a political crisis. Uh, when the first war uh, broke out in 1914, uh, the Borden government decided to finance the war entirely through borrowing. The practice prior to that time had been for the federal government to finance capital expenditures through borrowing, current expenditures through current taxation. And the protection of Canadian independence and security uh, through the war was analogized to a capital expenditure. And so the decision was made that the war would be financed through borrowing. And uh, in each successive budget from 1914, 15, 16, 17, uh, Sir Thomas White, the finance minister, mentioned but rejected income taxation. 
And it was not a major political issue. There were backbenchers in the opposition side who raised uh, the issue of imposing income tax, but the opposition front bench, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, William Fielding, uh, did not. But in the spring of 1917, uh, Robert Borden went to France to visit the Canadian Army. Uh, and he became convinced because the uh, rate of enlistment by then was not replacing the casualties. Uh, this, of course, would be about the time of Vimy Ridge, the Somme in 1916. The Canadian Army, of course, had fought in the Second Battle of Ypres in uh, 2015. Uh, and he uh, and Passchendaele was yet to come, and decided that uh, Canada had to impose conscription in order to keep up the manpower levels in the arm in the in the army. Uh, cabinet agreed with him. Uh, this set off a major political crisis uh, because of principally because of opposition in. Uh, in Quebec and French Canada. Uh, the Liberal Party split on the issue, Laurier against conscription, most of the English-speaking Liberals in favour. Conservative Party split partly too. French-speaking Conservative members uh, would not support that. Uh, at the same time, there should have been an election in 1916. Uh, that had been extended by unanimous agreement to 1917. Uh, the opposition was now balking at further extension. There was uh, social unrest because of the inflation that uh, was in increasing uh, during the war, partly because of the way the war was financed. Uh, there were attempts made to form a coalition government uh, with Laurier, but they foundered because Laurier would not accept conscription. In the middle of this, the conscription bill was uh, introduced. It was the Military Service Act was passed in July of uh, 1917, the day following uh, White introduced the Income War Tax Act. Uh, and it was designed to meet uh, increasing criticism that uh, while conscription would conscript manpower, would conscript the sons of Canadians, uh, a measure was needed that would conscript their wealth. So they needed conscription of wealth as well as conscription of people. And, uh, and the income tax fulfilled that. Uh, fulfilled it because it uh, was only directed, given the uh, levels of exemption, uh, it was really only directed at a relatively wealthy minority of the population. It was not needed to finance the war. Uh, the war cost $1.6 The total amount actually collected by November 1918, when the war ended, was $8 million dollars was useful in paying the costs uh, of the war after the war income on the increased debt, veterans' pensions, and the like, was not really needed to finance the war. It was needed to solve a political problem and to create uh, a sense of fairness. In the book, you mentioned that Canadian income tax was influenced by American and British tax regimes. However, you claim that Canadian tax policy and administration was unique. Can you explain some distinctive features of the Canadian tax system? Well, one general feature is that the income tax legislation, including the first Income Tax Act in 1917, was 
in, in its very, very general outlines, was really modeled on the American model. That uh, you, you took the various sources of income, you aggregated them in one pot, and you applied tax to that. Not like the British system, um, where you had different kinds of income from different sources, each one taxed separately, and then you added that up. But while we followed, in that respect, the American pattern, uh, in interpreting the legislation, we virtually always followed the, uh, the British case law, the British jurisprudence. And just probably the best example of that is that the under the American Income Tax Act in the early 1920s, um, the American courts decided that income included capital gains. In Canada at the same time, using language which for these purposes was virtually identical to the American language, Canadian courts decided that income did not include capital gains. And so there was no capital gains tax in Canada consequently until 1972. Uh, and that pattern of uh, following, tending to follow American uh, draft, statutory drafting, but almost in, invariably following uh, uh, the British uh, jurisprudence uh, remained throughout the, uh, the life of the Act. You've already discussed how uh, tax we used to fund World War I, or in really not fund World War I, but to solve a political problem. Can you explain the major points of departure between using income tax through World War I and then World War II? As I said before, the Income War Tax Act 1917 was a minority tax. In the interwar period, there were never more than about, at most, 300,000 taxpayers out of a population which uh, by 1939 was probably 12 million. So it was only a small, relatively small minority of Canadians who actually paid tax, and even some of the people who had to file returns were only paying very small amounts of tax. So it was what, um, what the American uh, tax historians would call a class tax, and it goes back to this sense of fairness. So when the Second War broke out, uh, uh, Mackenzie King's uh, intention was to limit the Canadian war effort as much as possible and to, to do that to avoid a second conscription crisis, to avoid casualties. Uh, the plan was to principally uh, provide uh, naval and air forces and supplies and equipment. Uh, in uh, the late fall of 1939, the uh, the generals produced their estimate of what they would need, $500 million, uh, which was about the same as the overall expenditure budget of the Canadian government at the time. The cabinet looked at it and cut it in half, said to the generals, you can only have $250 million. Uh, this continued uh, through into uh, the spring of 1940, and then, of course, as things happen, things happened. Uh, in uh, the spring of 1940, the German Blitzkrieg uh, conquered France, knocked France out of the war. By June of 1940, Canada was Britain's main ally, and, of course, ended up standing alone with Britain against Nazi Germany for the, fall, the 18 months following that. In that. At that point, which was arguably the supreme crisis of the 20th century, uh, the King government 
reversed itself and committed Canada to what it described as total war. And that meant devoting every possible physical resource, whether of persons or property, to the war effort. And, of course, that had to be financed. And that uh, ended up revolutionizing the position of the income tax, um, particularly because uh, the, uh, the people in the Department of Finance had learned the lesson of the first war, that if you finance this expenditure by borrowing, particularly from, by borrowing outside Canada, you fuel inflation. And they were determined to avoid uh, the inflation that had occurred during the first war, and so they committed themselves to using taxation as much as possible to finance the war effort. Now, uh, they were facing virtually unlimited expenditures uh, on the war, and uh, the tax system had to be changed to uh, to accommodate that. And uh, the in the middle of this... Um, in, in actually the day that uh, Italy declared war on Britain and Canada, uh, an RCAF plane flying from Ottawa to Toronto crashed uh, it's east of Toronto, killing everyone on board, including the defense minister, Norman Rogers. Uh, this prompted a cabinet reshuffle uh, as a result of which the previous finance minister, uh, J.L. Ralston, moved to uh, defense. And... Uh, James Lorimer Ilsley, who had been a, a, originally a backbench member from Nova, rural constituency in Nova Scotia, and immediately before that, the Minister of National Revenue became the finance minister, and Ilsley presided over uh, what was really a transformation of the Canadian tax system. You and your co-author do a superb job of describing the influence of various politicians and bureaucrats in the creation and implementation of Canadian tax policy. You talk about Prime Minister Mackenzie King and O.D. Skelton, who, of course, historian Norman Hilmer has called the most influential public servant in Canadian history. But I found that one of the most fascinating historical figures mentioned in your book is Finance Minister James Ilsley. Can you explain his approach to financing the war and the various social programs that emerged from post-war reconstruction? Yeah, Skelton actually had... Uh, been the first person to argue that war should be financed by tax and not borrowing, actually in 1918. But Ilsley and the officials in the Department of Finance, including the the uh, Deputy Minister Clifford Clark, fully agreed with this. Uh, and so when Ilsley became finance minister, he set out to raise taxes. He went to the cabinet in late 1940 and said that taxes would have to be imposed at rates which would make you and everyone else gasp. Uh, and he was correct. He, he pointed out that you could not finance the war by simply taxing this relatively wealthy minority, that you had to go into the lower tax brackets. Uh, and in the 1941 and 1942 budgets, uh, the number of taxpayers increased from 300,000 to between 2 and 3 million. Uh, most working Canadians now became taxpayers filing taxes. In 1942, the source deduction system where uh, tax was deducted from uh, weekly or monthly paychecks uh, was instituted uh, as part of that. As a result, and to put this into perspective, the 
the expenditure budget of the federal government, which had been $500 million before the war, by 1940, the late 1942, early 1943, was $5.5 billion. It had increased by 1,100%. Uh, and to the extent that that was financed through taxation, uh, taxes increased overall by about 500%, uh, the income tax by uh, closer to 1,000%. Uh, even so, there was widespread. It, it was not possible to entirely finance the war through taxation. There were extensive victory bond campaigns, uh, which also had the effect of fighting inflation by soaking up purchasing power, and that also was Ilse's responsibility. He organized and led the victory bond campaigns, and he also introduced uh, and uh, and supervised uh, a comprehensive system of wage and price controls from late 1941. In addition to dealing with various uh, foreign exchange crises, it was just a, a crushing burden. Uh, Ilsley actually permanently affected his health. The other reason Ilsley was successful, not only did he master the technical aspects of it, but, but he persistently called for um, austerity. He, he consistently uh, argued that people had to make sacrifices uh, to for the war effort. He himself gave up his car. He rode the streetcar from his home in Ottawa to Parliament Hill. And there's a famous story that was printed in Maclean's magazine in mid, I think in 1942. Uh, Ilsley had been on the streetcar going home from, uh, from his office one day. And a woman who was on the car had uh, a bag of, uh, of oranges, which she'd purchased the bag dropped, the oranges fell on the floor of the streetcar, and who was on his hands and knees helping her pick them up? Bill Ilsley. And the other cabinet ministers rode in limousines, Ilsley rode the streetcar. And <clears throat> this gave him a huge amount of moral credibility. Um, and in fact, the Gallup polls at the, in the late, in, say, 1945, uh, actually showed that he was the most popular of all the ministers, even though he was the one that had imposed these huge taxes uh, on people. Uh, so Ilsley was really responsible for the successful financing of the war. The, the, the social welfare aspect of it, it's, it's, it's tempting to assume that, uh, that that was contemplated at the time taxes were increased uh, in, in 1941, 1942. But that didn't really come become a significant issue until late 1942 into 1943, at which point... Um, the real crisis of the war had passed. At that point, victory was, uh, although not immediate, probably fairly certain. Uh, and, you know, attention turned to other things. Uh, and at that point, um, proponents of uh, a broader social welfare program, of course, realized that here was uh, a very... Uh, uh, important, very uh, powerful source of revenue to to finance that, uh, and so it, it kind of morphed from from war into welfare, um, but not uh, not intentionally uh, from uh, from the beginning. Certainly, it was just it was a byproduct in in effect of war. 
Well, that's fascinating, and I want to follow up on that. The book provides a fascinating analysis of the evolution of income tax as a means to fund the war effort, as you've already talked about, to providing the financial framework for the modern social welfare state. I'd like to ask you to describe that evolution and how influential were the ideas of John Maynard Keynes? The welfare provisions actually started in late 1939. The the government set up a committee to design post-war veterans benefits. Actually came up with the most generous veterans program in the entire of any of the allied countries. The committee that did that moved on, uh, mostly uh, had outside people, a committee headed by the principal of uh, McGill University, Cyril James, um, moved on to start considering uh, welfare programs, really uh, in, independently of what the finance department was doing. Um, commissioned the report by Leonard Marsh in 1942, which became very well known. Um, uh, then about the same time, Sir William Beveridge had uh, released a similar and very well-known report in the United Kingdom, uh, which uh, attracted attention at, at, by this point at the political level. Mackenzie King, for example, actually discussed the Beveridge report with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt on one of his meetings with Roosevelt in late 1943. And at the same time, a lot of political pressure was developing, ha- had begun to develop um, to, uh, as a result of the general upheaval of the war, uh, to produce arguably a more just or a more equal society. Uh, and uh, this uh, principal proponents of this at the federal level with the CCF, the, it, you know, the predecessors of the NDP, uh, and uh, the the first Gallup polls that were done in Canada in uh, in 1943 uh, showed that um, the CCF was building up what to King was an alarming level of support, and so King uh, uh, set the the cabinet the federal cabinet to work to devise a program of similar measures which would. Um, uh, repel this uh, this uh, partisan of this attack on on the government by uh, by the CCF principally by the CCF um, the, the plan was developed uh, it was brought to a federal provincial conference in 1945 uh, and uh, it stalled there um, the uh, and, and this to some extent this is where Keynes comes in Um the uh, uh, Keynesian influence began coming into the de- finance department probably in the mid-1940s. Robert Bryce, who later became the deputy minister, had studied under Keynes in Cambridge in the 30s. Um, the economists were in favor of some of these welfare measures, not so much because of their humanitarian uh, effect, but because they were concerned about a post-war depression. And, of course, the Keynesian analysis was to spend, to keep up purchasing power in the economy, keep the economy going. And one way they saw of doing that were family allowances, which is the first major program that was proposed, because that would give purchasing power to ordinary Canadians uh, and would uh, would help support the economy. And so they were in favor of it for that and, and for humanitarian reasons uh, as well. Uh, but they had convinced themselves that they needed to have uh, permanent 
federal control of income taxation, both personal and corporate income taxation. Uh, they had uh, temporarily uh, obtained that in 1941 uh, as, as part of the war emergency financing. They'd enter into uh, what were called tax rental agreements where the provinces gave up their income taxes uh, in return for cash payments. The federal government then administered the uh, personal and corporate income tax entirely by itself. Um, federal government, uh, the Department of Finance felt that this had to continue uh, after the war if uh, these welfare programs were to be successfully financed. Um, the larger provinces, uh, Quebec, Ontario, British Columbia, uh, strongly opposed this. Uh, they were not willing to give up uh, their uh, income taxes, although uh, British Columbia later compromised. Uh, and the the, uh, the Federal Provincial Conference collapsed, uh, actually went on and off over a number of months. It collapsed in the spring of 1946. Um, Federal government then announced that these proposals would have to be largely, uh, largely postponed, and there was, uh, of course, it was then another ten years until, for example, hospital insurance was uh, introduced on a national level. Um, but uh, the the uh, the influence of the Keynesians in the Department of Finance, who felt that um, in order to manage the economy, they had to have control of the principal taxes uh, w contributed to this. Um, they they, uh, they pr produced this conflict with the provinces, which really strongly disagreed with that. Long answer to a short question. No, it's a very, very interesting answer, though. And I also want to ask you about the most Canadian of all things, the Royal Commission. In the book, you refer to a number of Royal Commissions as impacting the tax policy, such as the Ralph Sirwa Commission and the Royal Commission on Cooperatives. How did these Royal Commissions influence tax policy? I think there's a lesson there. The, the Royal Sirwa Commission, of course, uh, which uh, whose, whose report was released in uh, early 1940, um, of course, uh, recommended that all income tax be jurisdiction be transferred to the federal government. Uh, and at the in, in early 1941, the federal government, it, as part of its war finance policy, had tried to persuade the provinces to accept that. They re refused. The, the, there was a federal provincial conference in January of 1940, which broke up in discord over that. Uh, they would not accept, again, Ontario and Quebec, and at, at that point, Alberta, uh, opposing the federal government. Um, the war emergency allowed... Uh, temporarily allowed the federal government to override that opposition because of for patriotic reasons that the provinces were were not willing to really um, uh, disrupt the federal war financing program um, so it's but it's unclear whether it's very general recommendations really played much uh, of a long-standing uh, role uh, there had been proposals before for uh, kind of, um, adjusting the way in which the income taxes were 
uh, were administered, trying to make them more uniform, trying to make them work more smoothly, um, that uh, were independent of the uh, of the commission. Um, it, partly because uh, Canadian academics loved it, uh, it became uh, you know a lot of attention was focused on it. The smaller royal commissions were much more effective. Uh, there were two appointed in 1944. One dealt with uh, the, co the taxation of cooperatives. Uh, the other dealt with um, pensions and the problem of corporate surplus. Both of them, it, within a very short a few months, produced a report, a targeted, limited report. In both cases, the reports were almost entirely adopted in full and immediately legislated, and they were very effective. The obvious comparison next, if I can move on to that, is with the uh, Carter Commission in the 1960s. And Carter Commission, of course, made extraordinarily uh, broad and far-reaching recommendations, uh, the majority of which, of course, were never adopted. And I guess the lesson there is that a narrower targeted approach uh, can work very well with the Royal Commission. Uh, the broad, you know, shotgun approach, uh, not so much. Well, I'm looking forward to reading about that in the upcoming volumes. In the conclusion to this volume, you write, there's always a temptation for the historian to project the present onto the past by assuming the inevitability of the path from the past to the present. What are the dangers of presentism when it comes to the history of tax policy? Well, I just think it... Uh it, it doesn't tell the true story. I guess the best example of this is with social welfare uh, policy and, and its connection with taxation, that there's a temptation to see a sort of inevitable development. Uh, first, the income tax is, is a class tax, then it becomes a mass tax during the war, then it's used to finance these welfare measures. Uh, and assuming that that's all one sort of inevitable single process. In 1939, before the war started, uh, the King government had been elected in 1935 with a very strong majority, could have changed most anything it wanted. Uh, it made virtually no changes to the tax system. There was a very small increase in the corporate tax, but virtually no changes. And in 1939, there was no prospect of any broadening of the income tax uh, or, for that matter, uh, any huge expansion of the welfare state. Um, and if, this, if the war hadn't occurred, um, it's very difficult to say that things would have developed the way they did. I mean, history is, in my view, is one contingent event after another. And, you know, you look at it, you look at those events, you tell the story. And uh, I, I, I think it's a mistake to impose some kind of meta-narrative uh, on it. Yeah, others may disagree. Well, I think that's an excellent way to wrap up our interview on the contingency of historical research. So I'll ask you, what surprised you the most about doing research for Volume 1? And what's some of the unanticipated things that you found doing research for Volume 2 and 3? Well, the most interesting thing uh, from Volume 1 was that um, when, when um, R.B. Bennett became Prime Minister in 1930, he... Um, 
he made himself finance minister. Uh, last lasted for a year. Bennett um, had an extraordinary capacity for work. Uh, and, and one of the things he did as finance minister was to order that all records, uh, memos, whatever, uh, relating to a budget, to the development of fiscal policy, were to be destroyed as soon as the budget had been implemented. And that policy seems to have continued uh, through to the late, 1930s. So there's a whole period in which there are actually no records, whatever. Uh, there are no archival records um, because Bennett, for whatever reason, didn't want them kept. Uh, and Robert Bryce himself, when he was the Deputy Minister of Finance, instituted uh, a search and could find nothing. I think that that's probably the most surprising thing that I found. Yeah, what surprised you about the research for the upcoming volumes? Because I'm sure you're well into the research on those two two volumes. A couple of things, I guess. The, the Income War Tax Act ceased to apply in 1949. It was replaced by a rewritten uh, Income Tax Act, uh, the generally referred to as the 1948 Income Tax Act, which applied until the uh, tax reform exercise in 1971-72. Um, what is striking is how relatively calm and peaceful that period was compared with the previous period. Um, you know, there were every year there were changes. There were some changes that were relatively significant, but uh, the position of the income tax in public finance didn't really change much during that period. And the act at the end of the period was not radically different than the act at the beginning of the period. So it is really a period of of, of calm uh, and, uh, you know, maybe a building storm, but uh, but a period of relative calm, quite a different, uh, quite a different picture from the, uh, the the development of the of the 1917 act. The other the other uh, the other thing and this uh, I guess is really not surprising, although it, it um, I, I hadn't realized this until I really looked at the uh, the Carter Commission uh, proposals. Uh, was that um, you know in the in the Canadian tax community among Canadian tax professionals, for example, uh, there's a kind of assumption that the current income tax act we have is somehow a product of the Carter Commission. Uh, they they blame it on the Carter Commission. But the fact is that that most of the Carter Commission proposals were actually not adopted. Um, uh, the the whole uh, period of consideration of the Carter Commission was a pretty rocky road for the uh, for the government at the time, uh, and uh, it the present act is really not actually a significant amount of the act as it after it was amended in 1972, uh, it was really carried forward from the 1948 Act. Um, and other changes were made, but many of those changes were not changes that, uh, that the Carter Commission report uh, recommended. 
Well, Colin, I found volume one of this series absolutely fascinating. It was a page turner and I was very intimidated by the whole subject of, of tax, but the interweaving of tax and the funding of war and social welfare policy and this whole era and subject of Canadian history has been understudied in my opinion. And I think this, this series is gonna fill a real gap and make a really significant contribution to the literature. Thank you so much for talking to us about your book today. Thank you. My guest today has been Colin Campbell. He's the co-author with Robert Rosen of A History of Canadian Income Tax, Volume 1, 1917 to 1948, published by the Osgood Society for Canadian Legal History and the Canadian Tax Foundation in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter. We always appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on January 24th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press journal team.